Mark uh, chapter 3, we wanted to get finished with that, or chapter 4, uh, we wanted to finish that chapter so that um, once that was done, I had been feeling I wanted to take a different direction. And I don't know how long this is going to take us. I can tell you that it, it could very easily be a year. It could very easily be more than that. Uh, in fact, looking back, as much as I have taught doctrine in the last 21 and a half years, the fact is I don't know that I've ever um, taught everything I have, all of my material. I don't think I've ever put it into a series of lessons and given you everything. And uh, I really feel like doing that. I feel like just taking the time to really go through everything. Uh, I'll be honest, I've, I, um, I was disturbed some time back um, when someone raised in the church asked me a very simple doctrinal question, something that, that uh, everyone should have known from their childhood. And, uh, you know, you, you, you think... You do a good job as a teacher sometimes. Or I don't think I do a good job. You think you do a thorough job. You think you've covered it well enough that everybody gets it, and then you find out not everybody did. And I want to try to take enough time that everybody gets it. I want everybody to get it. Praise God. And uh, I will tell you, I will tell you, um, that, that if there are questions that you've been asked that you don't have answers to, would you please write them down? Would you please get them to me? Now, most likely, I'll deal with them before we finish this series. Most likely, I will cover them. In fact, I was teaching at a place a few months ago, and I encouraged the folks. I uh, said, uh, for a couple nights, I told them, said, write your questions down and bring them. And if I get time, I will take the questions that you brought and deal with them. And there was a lady there that had been raised um, believing a different message, uh, was now in the truth. But she she told me after service, she said, I brought the hardest questions I could think of, the things that we always heard, the things they always told us to ask. And I uh, said, I had them prepared and ready to ask you, but you answered them before we ever got to a question and answer session. So we very likely will get to them, but... It'd be good if you wrote them down, just in case. The other thing is that um, I think most of you are aware that Bishop Howard has asked me now for a couple of years to be to to write a book on doctrine, and I I have begun that process. Uh, actually, have several chapters uh, already, kind of done, I guess, sort of done. You never know if you're done until. You send it to the publisher, and then you're not sure if it's done. Uh, and it may be really done. Um, but uh, there may be questions that, that I haven't yet been asked. There may be questions that I haven't included. And I really do want to make sure that when this book comes out, I, I want to have a whole section just on questions. And I want to be able to provide biblical answers to every question that I'm presented, and, and it will become a tool for you. You just take this book and, 
and who knows, maybe we can find a way to take just the question and answer session and, and do a little separate printout where you can just stick that in your purse or your uh, jacket pocket and, and carry it with you. If somebody asks you a question, flip right to it, and, uh, and you got the answers right there in front of you. I want to provide you with tools. Now, I'll say this. The ultimate goal is not that you be able to use what I write. The ultimate goal is that you know this well enough that you don't need my book. And, and also understand, I've taught you for 21 and a half years, I am not infallible. And if I write a book, that doesn't mean that it's divinely inspired by God and every word in it's God-breathed. So don't use my book as though it's the Bible, all right? It's not. And you need, you need to know the Bible for yourself. You need to be able to answer these questions. I'm telling you there should never, ever, ever be a question about our doctrine that you cannot answer. Never. And I want to tell you, if you get a revelation of these things, it clears up so much. And, and once you get a revelation, I don't care what passage you turn to, there's an answer there. And you understand it in the light of the revelation God has given you. The carnal mind cannot understand the things of God. Do you know that? I know you're standing. Do you know that? That's what the Bible says. The carnal mind cannot understand the things of God. It is enmity against God. The carnal mind hates God. And so the carnal mind is going to fight everything God says. And this is why, church, we need, we need number one, a revelation in which God enlightens our minds. And number two, we need an anointing. Not God quiet. I'm not just talking about the preacher. I'm talking about when you talk to others about it. You can show them every scripture in this book and them still not see it if God doesn't give them a revelation. And so you've got to reach a place that that you've got both the knowledge and the anointing to help others see the truth. And that's what it's all about. God's been talking to this church about reaching out to others. And uh, we've got to be equipped. The Apostle Peter uh, said that we should be ready at all time to give an answer to every man. Ask a reason of the hope that lies within us. Ready at all time. I want to say at all time. I want to say to every man. Now that's, that's the mandate we have from Scripture. That you're ready all the time to answer everybody that asks you. Well, praise God. So I'm telling you, I don't care. If, if you start talking to somebody and find out they're a pastor down the road, you shouldn't feel intimidated. You ought to know the Scripture well enough. Hallelujah.
And so we're going to start. We're going to start. I thought about doing some introductory lessons about the importance of doctrine and all that. We may throw some of that in before all this is finished. But really what I felt what and what I've been feeling is I just want to go back and I want I want to go through everything that I've got on the subject of the Godhead. And I want I want to give it to you in such a way that you get the revelation and you've got the answers. Now, I hope that New Life Pentecostal Church is not bored by the study of the Godhead. I've taught it. I've preached it. I've preached it. I've taught it for 21 and a half years. But I'm going to tell you this. It's amazing. I don't know if you heard them the other day in Johannesburg. But some of those preachers said, wow, you were on fire. We never heard some of that. Well, I said the same things I've said at every conference. But it's just, it's just, you know, sometimes there's just things our mind doesn't catch. And somewhere along the road, we get a hold of something that we had not gotten before. So don't ever feel bored by this study. You ought to be thankful to God that you know the truth. When you think about how many multitudes are in church today worshiping a God that is different than the one the Bible actually describes, and they're doing it in all sincerity, and you know the truth, you ought to get excited every time you hear it. You ought to get excited every time you hear it. Well, praise God. All right, let's turn to Matthew chapter 16. We are thankful for each of those of you who are here today. I do appreciate your presence in this service today. Thank you for coming and joining us today. Praise God. Amen. Matthew chapter 16. And we will begin with verse number 13. Matthew 16 and verse 13. When Jesus came into the coasts, of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Praise God. Jesus asked two questions of his disciples. First of all, who do men say that I am? Tell me what is the common accepted theory as to my identity. 
And when they shared with him the various ideas that were being circulated, some of which I cannot for the life of me figure out, such as why they would say he was John the Baptist. Did they think he baptized himself? Maybe they didn't know that fact. I don't know. Um, It just, uh, it just, I can't quite figure that out. But anyhow, some say John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But then Jesus asked the all-important question that each of us must answer. Listen to me, saints of God. Hear what I am telling you right now. The identity of Jesus Christ is not an optional doctrine. This is not something that people can have differing views about and it be okay. This, and at some point during this series of study, I'll prove it to you from the Scripture. But I'm going to tell you, this doctrine is a heaven or hell issue. And so we better know who he is. Again, that's a big statement to make, but I'll prove it from the Scripture when I have the opportunity. We'll get down to that. But Jesus himself said it was. He said, if you don't believe this, you'll die in your sins. That's what he said. So it's important that we know who he is. And we're going to talk about who he is for a while today and for however many weeks in the future the Lord allows us to do this. Would you put your Bible down now? I want you to lift your hands, lift your voices, and let's ask the Lord to talk to us today. Can we do that, everybody? In fact, would you pray, God, if I don't have a revelation, give me one. Would you pray that? Lord, I want a revelation. I want a revelation today. I don't want just knowledge of who you are. I want a revelation of who you are. Oh, God. Jesus is present. And I'm asking God, help me today. God, I want you to help me. Lord, as we go through this, I want the people to grasp it. I want them to get it. Help me, Lord Jesus. Anoint their ears, their minds, their hearts. Those who don't have a revelation, let them receive a revelation before this study is We thank you, Lord. We praise you now in Jesus' name. Let's worship him one more time. Everybody, can we do that? Come on, let's give God some praise in this house. Let's give God praise in this house. Praise God. God bless you. You may be seated. Saints of God, let me say one more thing. I can tell you without question today that there are people sitting here under the sound of my voice. Furthermore, there may be people listening on the Internet or or who may listen later on the Internet who do not have a revelation of the Godhead. And I'm going to tell you, it is crucial that you as saints help me this morning. 
it's crucial that you feel what I feel and that you get the passion that I'm feeling this morning so that this message can, can have, as the Scripture says, free course to reach into the hearts and the minds of the people who need it. Will you help me out today? How about the rest of you? Will you help me out today? Praise God. Amen. In our text, Jesus first asked his disciples about the opinions of others concerning who he was. And they responded, as I said, with the things that obviously they had been hearing uh, as they traveled uh, throughout the land. Jesus then asked them a question that was far more important than the opinion of others. That was he wanted to know the opinion of his followers. Uh, He wanted to know, who do you say that I am? And it was when Jesus asked that question that Peter made his well-known declaration, Matthew 16 and verse 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ. Thou art the Christ. Thou art the Christ. This may not mean much to us, but the original Christos, this, this, it means the anointed one. Peter was making a proclamation, you are the Messiah. You are the one that the Jews have been looking for for thousands of years. You are the Christ, the anointed one, the son of the living God. Now, there are a couple things about this conversation that I need to bring to your attention this morning before we get into the real depth of this lesson. First of all, first of all, I want you to see uh, verse 17, what Jesus said in response to Peter. Answer Jesus and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon You're a blessed man, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood hath not And here's why you're blessed. Flesh and blood did not give you this revelation. Read. But my Father which is in heaven. You have proclaimed me to be the Messiah. And I want you to understand that's a revelation. But Peter, you didn't get this because somebody set you down and convinced you of this by teaching you something. But what happened is at some point, the power of the Spirit enlightened your mind and gave you an understanding as to who I really am. Now, saints of God... Jesus said Simon was blessed because of the fact that he had a revelation. In fact, he went on to say in verse 18, And I say also unto thee, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, thou art Peter, and upon this rock, and upon I will build my this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now listen to this. He said, thou art Peter. Now there, there is a church in the world today who said that Jesus there announced he was building his church on Peter. That's not even close to being accurate. Peter's name means rock. But, but the Greek word here for Peter is different for, from the Greek word uh, for the rock upon which the church is built. Uh, Peter is Petros. And, and that is a pebble. It's a small stone. But Jesus said, Peter, you're just a small stone. But I'm going to build my church on the rock, the Petra, the boulder, if you please, uh, of the revelation of who I am. 
Listen to me, New Life Pentecostal Church. The church that Jesus built is built on the revelation of who He is. And any church that is not on that revelation, if it's not on that rock, it's not His church, it's somebody else's. And He didn't promise to protect anybody else's church. He said the gates of hell are not going to prevail against my church. The only way it can be his church is if it's on the rock of the revelation of who he is. Well, praise God. That is the foundation of the true church. Now listen, I don't want any of our guests today to think that when I use the term true church, I'm throwing stones at anybody else. I'm going to tell you, I'm not talking about a denomination. I'm not talking about a church affiliation. I'm not talking about being a member of a, of a ministerial organization. There is only one church. And I don't care what you call yourself. I don't care what label you put on the door. Alright? You're either a part of His church or you're a part of something else. I want to be a part of His church. And the only way I can know for sure that I'm in His church is if I'll examine the foundation. And the foundation has got to be the revelation of who Jesus is. There's no argument about this. There is no debate about this. 1 Timothy 3.16, listen to this. And without controversy. Now wait a minute. And what? And without controversy. Say it again. And without controversy. Say it again. And without controversy. Without controversy. Alright? Everyone say without controversy. Without controversy. That is one Greek word in the original. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna spend my time on a lot of Greek. This church knows I do not believe you've got to have a working knowledge of the original languages to understand the Bible. I want to tell you what you do have to have. A relationship with God. He made this Bible clear enough, plain enough. If you'll get a relationship with Him and you'll put your face in that book, He'll explain the book to you. But it does help sometimes to bring out the original, just like in this case, where our English Bible says, without controversy, two words. The original Greek was one word, homologumenos. And that word simply means, by the consent of everyone. In other words, there's not one true believer that, dis- that, that disputes this fact. Anybody that's a real believer, anybody that's really a member of the church of Jesus Christ is going to agree to what I'm about to tell you. So what's he about to tell us? Without controversy. Without controversy. There's no debate. There's no argument. He said this is not a controversy in the real church. It may be a controversy out there to somebody else. It's not a controversy to the real church. There is no controversy among us. What? Without controversy. Great is the mystery of godliness. Now, not of the Godhead. It's important that you notice this. Because that's not the word that's used here. He didn't say great is the mystery of the Godhead. But great is the mystery of godliness. And again, I, I hate to 
I hate to do this, but the Greek word that is used there simply means uh, all of the Christian religion. It is everything we. This is not even. This word is, is not even righteousness. It's not the same Greek word. It's not talking about how we live or act or dress. But it is. It is the entire message of Christianity. Without controversy, great is the mystery of how this church came to be. It's a mystery. It's a mystery. Hallelujah. How it all happened. Why he did it is the mystery. Why would he love us? Who is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou business him? Why would he come to this earth and go through what he went through? Why would he do that? That, my friend, is a mystery. Say, well, it's because he loved us, yeah? But why did he love us? That's a mystery. All right, but let's go on. And then I want you to notice after the word godliness. Now, have you got your Bibles? This is Bible study Sunday morning. Bible study. We're studying our Bibles. If you've got your Bible, you should have it open right now to 1 Timothy 3.16. I want you to see something after the word godliness. And I've just defined that word for you. It is the entire scheme of the Christian message. After the word godliness, you'll see what the translators put here. What is that? That's a colon. It's a colon. A colon means, I'm about to explain this to you. All right? I'm about to explain it. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the whole scheme of Christianity. And he said, let me explain it to you like this. This is everything we believe. Church, I'm going to prove to you today, before we leave, I'm going to prove to you from the Scripture, this is the most important doctrine in the Bible. It's more important than, than, than salvation. Because without it, we can't have salvation. This is the most important doctrine in the Bible. Again, I'll prove it from the Scriptures, all right? But he says this is the whole scheme of what we believe. This is what it's all based on. What is it? Read. God was manifest This is what it's flesh. all based on. It's based on the fact that God was manifest in the flesh. Justified in the Spirit. Now, the subject here is God. Everyone say God. I don't want to give you an English lesson either, but I have to do some of this, all right? But the subject is God. And with every recurring phrase, you can carry that subject right back into that phrase. God was what? Justified in the Spirit. God was manifest in the flesh. God was justified in the Spirit. Seen of angels. God was seen of angels. Preached unto the Gentiles. God was preached unto the Gentiles. Believed. God the was world. believed on in the world. Received and up in glory. God was received up into glory. There is the whole scheme of what we believe. Everything the church is built upon is wrapped up in that statement. God was manifest in the flesh. Hallelujah. The word manifest means to make known. See, the Jews for centuries wanted to know this God. They learned bits and pieces about this God. That's why they would take Yahweh 
uh, which, which really is a Hebrew verb that means to be. I, I just don't want to make this complicated. I'll try to keep it simple. But, but, but if, you ever, if you ever study a foreign language, you have to learn conjugation. Right, you have to learn conjugation, where you take the verb and, and you conjugate it based upon the subject. All right? Uh, if, if you take the verb to be, to be, and we conjugate it. Here's the way we conjugate it. We take to be. If we're talking about me, first person, I am. Talking about him, he is. Right? You are. They are. We're, it's, it's all the verb to be. It depends on the subject, whether we're talking about ourselves, talking to someone, about someone, whether it's singular or plural, right? To be, and that's really what Yahweh is. It is the it is a Hebrew verb meaning to be, and that's why when Moses said, "Who shall I say sent me?" He said, tell them what is first person singular of to be. I am. Tell them I am has sent you. That's what God is. He just identified himself as I am. Now, that's a linking verb. It requires something after it. And that's why that's all they knew him as I am. But through the centuries, they started learning he is what? He is I am. Jehovah Jireh, I am provider. Jehovah Shammah, I am there. Jehovah Sidkenu, I am righteousness. All right? All of these compound titles attached to Jehovah. Jehovah Reah, he, I am shepherd. Jehovah Shalom, I am peace. Or we say, He is peace. And so all through the ages, this to be had something connected to it as they learned bits and pieces about the God they were serving. But they never got the full picture until God was manifest or made known in the flesh. And when he was made known in the flesh, then everything that we need to know about God was revealed to us at that time. Oh, hallelujah. All right, all right, all right. So, so I want you to understand, there's no controversy. There's no debate. There's no argument within the real church. Everybody, everybody who is a true believer should agree on this. There's no room for debate on this. In fact, the Riggin revised and highly opinionated rendition would read this way. By the consent of all true believers... The basis of the Christian religion is the fact that God was made known in the flesh. 
That's the basis of everything we believe. All right, now, having said all that, let's talk about the Godhead. Let's talk about the Godhead. Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And so we're going to follow this same approach this morning, as we're going to talk about who men say that he is. We're going to talk about who men define God to be. All right? I think that we have to, if we're going to get, if we're going to be able to really understand and listen to me, especially the members of New Life. There's a whole lot of wrong thinking out there about what others believe. I have never met anybody who told me they believed in three gods. And yet they get accused of that all the time. I've never met anybody that said they believed in three gods. Alright? So, so let's be fair. We don't like people assuming things about what we believe. Charging us with believing things that we don't believe. Right? You know, you don't like it. Somebody says, well, that's a cult down there. A cult. A cult. Let's see. Jim Jones had a cult. And he talked his people into drinking Kool-Aid and killing themselves. Brother Thompson, I have a hard time getting people to pay their tithes. This is not a cult. Hallelujah. That's right. This is far from a cult. Anyhow, um, we want to be fair as we discuss what others believe. So, so when we look into the modern theological definition of the Godhead, most theological scholars today would identify God as the Holy Trinity. God is the Holy Trinity. They then define the Trinity as three separate and distinct persons who are co-equal, co-eternal, and co-existent, but who together make one God. Hear me, church. Somebody says they believe in the Trinity. You're going to waste your time reading scriptures that just say one God, one God, one God, one God. Because they're going to agree with you. This is what they're taught. There's only one God. But this one God is three separate, distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, And God the Holy Spirit. Now, stay with me for a few moments. I've I've done a lot of research. I want to be fair to those who, who subscribe to this philosophy. So I've done a lot of research trying to find uh, common definitions for the Trinity. And and I'm going to tell you, I can't find a common definition. Every website I go to has some variation. And so I I can't just give you one pat answer other than the abbreviated synopsis that I've handed you. But 
but uh, one well, uh, well-known website that claims it's all about uh, Christian theology and understanding it and explaining it. Here's what they said. Now, are you ready for this? Listen to me. Here's what they said as they define the Trinity. Number one, there is in the divine being but one indivisible essence. In the divine being, there is but one indivisible essence. Two, in this one divine being, there are three persons or individual subsistences. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Are you lost yet? Me too. There's one essence that cannot be divided. But it's divided into three individual subsistences. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But they're really one. They're not divided. Number three, the whole undivided essence of God belongs equally to each of the three persons. Number four, the subsistence and operation of the three persons in the divine being is marked by a certain definite order. In other words, there is a first person and a second person and a third person. Number five, there are certain personal attributes by which the three persons are distinguished. And number six, and this is the only thing I could find that is common to every website that tries to define the Trinity, is this last point. So hang on for this one. Number six, the church confesses the Trinity to be a mystery beyond the comprehension of man. So in other words, we've just spent this time trying to explain it, but don't waste your time. You can't understand it. I'm not making this up. I'm telling you the truth. This is what they believe. This is what they are taught. And, and I could read. I've, I've got others. But, but let, me, let me tell you, this came from, from one of their websites. It said, a Christian, uh, Christian theologians have said, are you listening? Christian theologians have said, deny the Trinity and you will lose your soul. Try to explain it, and you will lose your mind. That's what they say. I'm not making that up. That's what they say. They say it is impossible for man to understand the Godhead. It is far too complicated. Don't waste your time. It's a mystery. You can't understand it. You cannot comprehend it. You'll never see it. You'll never understand it. It's too difficult. Now, here's my big problem, other than the fact that none of that really makes sense. My big problem with this is that when they come to the conclusion that the Godhead is a mystery beyond comprehension, they are in direct violation of the Scripture. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says this. Are you still with me? I don't want to lose you in all this, but I want to give you everything this morning, all right? Stay with me. Romans chapter 1 verse 20. For the invisible things of For the invisible the things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly are, seen. Wait a minute. Are 
They're what? Clearly seen. Say it again. Clearly seen. Everybody else say clearly seen. Everybody say clearly seen. All right? Being, they are clearly seen. Being understood. Stop. Being what? Understood. Being what? Understood. Everyone say understood. Now listen to me. Do you agree that whatever Paul is about to discuss, he is telling us that these things I'm about to describe for you are number one, clearly seen, and number two, understood. Three of you agree with that. Let me try to rephrase the question. Would you agree that the subject at hand, Paul says, is something that should be clearly seen and understood? So whatever he's going to talk about is not a mystery beyond comprehension. I mean, when you say something's clearly seen, that means it's like one plus one equals two. You, you can see that. It's, it's clearly seen. Right? Right? Come here, Jerome. Come here. Come here. Come here. Hurry, fast. Smile. Smile a while. Give your face a rest. Turn around face them. Stand up, stand up, stand up. Let me show you something. You may not know much about math, but I want to, I want to teach you something here. There's one man here, right? And there's one right here, right? Okay, so one plus one equals, now that's clearly seen, right? You don't have to be brilliant. It's clearly seen. Thank you. Now, this is what Paul is saying in Romans 1. There are invisible things. Things that our eyes cannot focus on. But I want you to know, he says, that they can be clearly seen. And they are understood. Read. Being understood by the things that are made. Even, Even eternal power his eternal power and Godhead. and Godhead. And Godhead. The Apostle Paul said that the Godhead is a subject which should be clearly seen and should be understood. He did not say it's a mystery beyond comprehension. He did not say this is too hard for your little mind to figure out. He didn't say you've got to understand five languages before you can even start to grasp this. He said this is, this is like one plus one equals two. This is so simple. It's so easy. It's clearly seen and it's understood. So that they are without excuse. In fact, he said, you want to know what? There's no excuse. This is so simple and this is so easy and this is so clearly understood. This is so clearly seen and understood that you have no excuse for this. Is that what your Bible says? Is that what your Bible says? So, so the big problem with this whole definition they've given us is that it all comes to the conclusion that you can't understand it. But Paul said, not only can you understand it, you better understand it. There's no excuse for you not understanding it. 
So I'm going to tell you, church, it really is as simple as one plus one. Or I should say it this way. It's as simple as one plus one plus one plus one is four. Because there are four Bible verses that if you grasp these four verses, then the Godhead becomes clearly seen. And really, I mean, it's four verses, but can I tell you this? Really what we're doing is we're adding one verse to a second verse and then add a third verse, and it really gives us the total. When we come to the fourth verse, it's really not something separate. It's just the total of what we've just read. All right? So, so it's, it's as easy as that. So why does it take me eight weeks to teach it? I don't know, but... You're not slow learners. I'm just a slow teacher. All right? No, I'll tell you why. It's because there are so many misconceptions out there and so much false doctrine out there until people have become confused. And I'm, I'm going to spend my time. I'm going to show you the simplicity of it. But I'm also going to spend some time dealing with all of their false concepts, all the crazy stuff that's been added through the years. Now, let me tell you something. The reason why the Trinity is a mystery beyond comprehension is because it is not a biblical doctrine. There is no place in the Word of God that the word Trinity even appears. The Bible doesn't use that term. And in fact, in fact, the doctrine of the Trinity was not fully developed until 325 A.D. When the Catholic Church met at the Council of Nicaea and offered a definition of the Godhead. Now think about this. 325 years after the birth of Christ. Men finally come up with a definition of the Godhead. It took over three centuries to come up with a definition. God's not that complicated. And I'm going to tell you, when Jesus walked on earth, He really gave us a definition. We're about to get to it. He gave us a definition while He was here on earth. It didn't take 325 years. And I want to know, who is it that is so arrogant that you think that you can come up with a definition to explain something Jesus wasn't even smart enough to explain? How arrogant must you be? If Jesus couldn't explain it, why do you think you can? The problem is Jesus did explain it. Jesus had no problem explaining it. He explained it very well, very succinctly. And it didn't take him 325 years to do it. He did it in one moment in a conversation with a woman who had a very bad reputation. But in that one simple conversation, he defined God for us. Now, I'm a little ahead of myself. We're going to talk about four. Everyone say four. Can we all count to four? We can count to four. I know some of you hail from Arkansas, but 
I think you've been in Kansas long enough that you can, maybe the person sitting next to you can help you get over that hump and get on the floor there. No, 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 I'm just having fun. Just, just four simple verses of Scripture that give us the entire framework that's necessary to understand the Godhead. All right? Now, we're not going to get through all these today. In fact, I'm not going to get through all of the first principle today. I'm going to introduce the first principle to you, but there is so much. And I've gone through these principles before to the church, but, but I said a while ago, I don't think I ever finished the statement, but I think in all of my 21 and a half years, maybe I did finish it, in all of my 21 and a half years, I don't think I've ever taught this church everything I have on this subject. And so we're going to take the time to go through it, however long that takes us. All right? So, so however long I've got to spend on each of these principles, it doesn't matter to me. When I'm out teaching this, when I go to Africa and teach it, I'm going to do it all in one session. Somebody invites me to come to their church and teach it, I, I'll get through all four principles. I may not get any further than that, but I'll get through all four principles generally in one session. I'm not going to worry about that today. We, we've only got less than a half hour left in, in this morning's service, and uh, I'm not going to worry about it. I will not get through with principle number one. I can give you principle number one. I can give you the verse for it, but dealing with it in depth is going to take me a while, all right? Everybody understand? So principle number one in understanding the Godhead comes to us from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul. And with all thy might. All right, now, um, got your Bible open? Got your Bible open? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And uh, go back to verse 4, if you would, uh, Brother Josh. I want to I point something out here. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now, I want you to look at the end of verse 4. You see what's at the end of verse 4. Again, the translators, uh, because there, there were no punctuation marks like this in the original, the translators put it here to help us understand this colon right here tells me that the sentence is not finished. If the sentence was finished, there would be a period. Is everybody with me? So, there's no period at the end of verse 4. There is a colon. Hear, O Israel. This is what I want you to hear. Hear that the Lord our God is one Lord. There's a reason why you need to know the Lord our God is one Lord. So, there's a colon there. And we go on to verse 5. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. Now we finally get to the period. Now this is important that we understand. Verses 4 and 5 is one sentence. Okay? It's all one sentence. That's important. It's, it's, it's not crucial, but it's important just to make a point of clarification in a moment. 
So, the first principle in understanding the Godhead is simply this. Hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So, principle number one, there is only one God. It's principle number one. And there's a reason why it's principle number one. All right? I'm going to show you why it's principle number one. And I'm also going to verify for you what I said earlier, that this is the most important doctrine in the Bible. I'm going to tell you there is not a more important verse in the Scripture than Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. There's not a more important passage. Not a more important one. And that's not my opinion. That's not what I've decided. It's not because it's my favorite. It is the most important passage in the Scripture. Let me tell you, this obviously was written to Israel. Hear, O Israel. This verse is called the Shema. Shema is, is the Hebrew word for hear. And they, they just abbreviated it. When they talked about it, it was the Shema. The Shema was written upon small scrolls and nailed to the doorpost of their house. They carried it in a small little band around their wrist. They, they wore it as frontlets between their eyes. They talked about it when they got up in the morning. The first thing they said was Shema Israel, And then they quoted the whole four and five in Hebrew. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This was what they did every morning. And then every night before they went to bed, they quoted it again. This was the most important passage to them. And there's a reason why. Because the Jews alone were a one God people. The rest of the world worshipped many gods, but they were unique because they had only one. And they understood this is our uniqueness. This is what sets us apart from the rest of the world. We don't worship many gods. We don't believe there's a God of the moon and a God of the sun and a God of the stars and a God of the waters and a God of the lands. We don't believe that. We believe there's one God. The Jews believed this so strongly that even to this day, many Jews, if they know they're dying, they want this to be the last thing they say before they die. I'm going to tell you, I feel so strongly about it. I'm going to tell you, this is a fact. When I have had the opportunity to hold my little grandbabies when they're born, the first thing my grandbabies hear Grandpa say, in every case, when I pick them up, when they finally, when the baby hogs finally turn them over, you know what I'm talking about. These women, they're all Gucci goo and carrying on, and I'm dying to get my hands on that baby. Who's that, the janitor? You know, I mean, that's kind of the way I feel. You just wait your turn. It is my turn. It's been my turn. That's my grandbaby too. Hand him over. I'm going to pull the pastor card if you don't do something. 
No, no. But I'm telling you, as soon as I can take that little bundle in my hands, the first words my grandkids have ever heard their grandpa say was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. I want that to be the first thing they ever hear Grandpa say. They're not going to remember it. But it's important to me. Because this is the most important verse in all the Scripture. Now let me prove it to you, alright? I'm going to take the time to prove it. I've got it on very good authority. Go with me to Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 28 through 30. In the Bibles. Mark, Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 30. And one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together and perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which of the first commandment of all? Which is the first commandment of all? Now look, the question is, Jesus, there are over 600 commandments in the Old Testament, which was the only Bible they knew. Hello? Right? Only Bible they knew. There were over 600 commandments. And he asked Jesus, out of those 600 plus, which one's number one? Now, I know Matthew quotes it a little differently. He cites the same reference. But I want you to hear Mark's rendition. Mark 12 Verse, where are we at? 29? Read. And Jesus answered him. Jesus first, answered him. The first of all of the all commandments, the commandments is, is, Hear, O Israel. The Lord the our Lord God, our is, one God Lord. is one Lord. And thou shalt and love, thou the, Lord shalt love God the Lord thy with God all thy heart, with all thy heart and, with all thy, and soul, with all thy soul and with, and with all, all thy mind, mind with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. Now, we often quote only the way Matthew said it. Matthew only gave us verse 5. But that's why I took the time to show you verses 4 and 5 are one sentence. This is all one commandment. Matthew, now help me out, New Life. Let's see if you've been paying attention all these years. Matthew wrote his gospel mostly to the... Uh, a few of you were there. Let me try that again. Now that you know the answer. Matthew wrote his gospel mostly to the... To the Jews. We've talked about this and talked about this and talked about this. Matthew was writing mostly to the Jews. So that's why Matthew always said, as the Scripture said, or according to the prophets, or that it might be fulfilled. He's talking to the Jews. So when Matthew gives them Deuteronomy 6.5, the Jews know. Verse 4 is part of that sentence. And verse 5 is dependent on verse 4. See, it's not enough that you just love any God with all your heart. Alright? 
Look, when a man or a woman straps a bomb on their back and walks into a crowded place and kills themselves for their God, I would say they love their God with all their heart. But does that get them into heaven? No, because they're not loving the right God. Look, just in case you didn't know, Allah is not the same God as Jehovah. It's not the same God with a different name. Allah is a different God than Jehovah. And it's very easy to prove that. Because Allah wants you to kill for Him. Jehovah said, I'll die for you. I'll take Jehovah. I'll serve Jehovah. Hallelujah. So, so yes, you've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart. But you've got to love the one Lord God with all your heart. So, for Matthew, verse 5, when he quoted Deuteronomy 6 and 5, the Jews understood. There's no question. But Mark is writing mostly to a... Boy, I'm telling you, I, I am doing a terrible job as a teacher. How many... We've been, what, three years on the book of Mark? And, and almost every Sunday I get up and say, Mark is writing to a mostly Roman audience. He uses Roman coins. He uses Roman links. He uses Roman. So then I come back and say, Mark is writing mostly to a, and somebody said Greek. Wake up, Eutychus. Oh, Jesus, it's one of those days when I feel like turning in my card and going selling cars or something. I don't know. All right, let's try again. Mark is writing mostly to a... Well, that sounds better. I'm glad you finally caught on. Um, Mostly to a Roman audience. The Romans worship many gods. So it was not enough for him to quote only verse 5. Mark had to make sure they got the entire quotation in there. And I'm telling you, you can't put verse 5 without verse 4 because it's all one sentence. And so Jesus said that the most important commandment of all is that there is only one God. Get this, saints. That is the most important. That is the most important verse of Scripture in all the Word of God. It supersedes Acts 2.38. It supersedes John 3.16. It's not saying the other verses are not valid. But the most important verse in all the Word of God is here, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. Most important. Nothing more important than that. That's not my opinion. That's what Jesus said. So Jesus said it's the most important and it's the most important. Hallelujah. So I'm telling you, 
Principle number one. Principle number one. Whatever else you believe about God, it cannot contradict the fact that God is one. You've got to believe He's one. You've got to believe there is only one God. Everyone say there's only one God. There is only one God. Hallelujah. You may give me just a couple more minutes here. Let me. I'm just about finished. Rebecca, come. I'm, I'm going to finish up. I'm going to let you out on time today. But, but I want you to understand this important principle. Whatever we believe about God, it's got to be built on the principle that He is one. Can everybody count to one? Now, I don't care how many ways you look at that, that's not three. That's not three in one. That's not two in one. That's one. This is not hard. This is clearly seen. Whatever else we're going to believe about God, we have to believe that He is one. I could go through many, many, many scriptures. I won't do it today. I'm going to give you two, and then we're going to quit. But, but let me give you just a couple of scriptures here. Romans chapter 3, verse 30. Seeing it is one God, which shall justify the circumstances. It's how many? One. It's how many? One. Come on, help me, saints. It's how many? It's how many? Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. It is one God that's going to do this. What does Ephesians 4 and 6 say? One God. One God. How many? How many? How many? There is one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, this is not one God and one Father. In fact, again, I hate to go back to the original, but the word and here, the word and, uh, this gets tricky. This gets tricky. And, and you do have to know, you do have to know more about the Greek language than just what I'm about to tell you, or you can get yourself in trouble. But there are many times when this conjunction, and, the Greek word kai, K-A-I, kai. The Greek word kai many times can be translated even. It's like, it's like saying I am pastor and bishop. Alright? It's not making me into two, I'm pastor, even bishop, because bishop means overseer. So I am pastor and I am overseer. I, I am. Th- th- that, and in some places you can take that Greek word kai. Don't try it in every place it appears. But if you know enough about the language, there are times when it, it can rightfully be translated even. There is one God, even the Father of all. That's who our one God is. And we're going to talk about that next week. But that's who our one God is. He is the Father. That's who our one God is. He is the Father of all, who is above all. 
He is through all. And thank God he's in you all. Hallelujah. Well, who's inside of me? God is. And I came to the altar and I repented of my sins and I got baptized in Jesus' name. They told me I got the Holy Ghost. But you know what Paul said? Who's inside of me? God is in you all. We'll talk about all that. We'll, we'll get there. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Hallelujah. Amen. But principle number one, very simple, very easy, very, very uh, comprehensible. Comprehensible. There's only one God. Everyone say there's only one God. Everyone say there's only one God. Turn to your neighbor and tell them there's only one God. Turn to somebody else and tell them there's only one God. Who are you talking to? You talking to nobody over here? Hallelujah. There's only one God. Jerome, there's only one God. Andrew, there is only one God. Larissa, there is only one God. Tori, there is only one God. Don't ever let anybody place any doubts in your mind otherwise. There is only one God. That is the foremost scripture in all of the Bible. And if you don't know anything else in the Bible, you better know, you better know Deuteronomy 6 and 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. He is the only God, and He is the only Lord. Oh, let's stand and love Him today. Let's stand and love Him. Praise God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's thank God. Let's thank God today. Oh, let's thank God today.